Well, hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you to this CHEST Journal podcast. I am Dr. Gretchen Winter, and I am your CHEST podcast moderator. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be an interesting discussion on the teaching of bronchoscopy skills. We are very fortunate to have Dr. Anna Brady and Dr. Matthew Miles as our guests. Dr. Brady and her colleagues wrote an article soon to be published in the CHEST Journal, Bronchoscopy Teaching Without a Gold Standard, Attending Pulmonologist Assessment of Learners, Supervisory Styles, and Variation in Practice. Dr. Brady is the incoming Program Director for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon, and is an Assistant Professor at OHSU. Dr. Miles wrote the accompanying editorial, The Scope of Teaching the Bronchoscope. Dr. Miles is the Fellowship Director for Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine and an Associate Professor of Medicine at Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He is also an immediate past chair of the Training and Transitions Committee for CHEST. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Yes, thanks very much. I appreciate the invitation and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Great. Well, Dr. Brady, I'd like to start by asking, why did you ask this question? What led you to study the teaching of bronchoscopies? I got interested in just the topic of how to teach procedures when I was a first-year fellow uh, because I found myself in the position of both teaching procedures that I could do to more junior learners, but then also learning new procedures myself for my faculty. And I spent a lot of time reflecting on the experience that I found it a lot harder to teach a procedure than to do one. And so I just became really interested in different approaches to uh, supervising procedures and why people might have different approaches. And bronchoscopy, I thought, would be a good procedure to study uh, because it had a lot of uh, different moving pieces and I thought would be kind of a richer teaching environment than, for instance, watching a source and thesis. And can you please explain your study design for our listeners? Yeah, so I decided to take a qualitative approach to this question. And, you know, there were a lot of things about procedural teaching I was interested in. I first thought I was going to be interested in how faculty were really coaching the movements of the fellow's hands and, you know, a lot of really nitty-gritty motor skills things. But, you know, ultimately I decided I wanted to look at how faculty were really dealing with this tension between trainee autonomy and safe supervision. And there aren't really well-validated scales for procedural teaching out there. People have tried to do quantitative studies and there, at least when I was planning the study, there certainly weren't well-validated instruments for evaluating procedural teaching. And so in, in that setting, I think it's great to take a qualitative approach. And I, I knew a little bit about qualitative research from a project I had worked on 
um, as a resident with Jessica Dine at the University of Pennsylvania. And I had to do a lot more learning about qualitative work. And so uh, what I did really fits best with what's called an ethnography. And you can basically think of me as an anthropologist. I was standing in the corner of the Bronx suite with a clipboard. I had the attending mic'd up so I could hear everything going on, um, the attending fellow dialogue during the procedures. And then I would use the field notes that I took from observing the Bronx and the you know, verbatim transcription of the attending fellow dialogue and go through and um, do what's called coding, so looking for patterns um, and pull out sort of the supervising behaviors that I was seeing. And then I also interviewed the attendings and the fellows afterwards. Now, you grouped supervising behaviors into four styles, modeling, coaching, scaffolding, and fading. Can you explain more about these four styles and how they were used in your study? Sure. So after we had identified, you know, individual behaviors that came out of our data, we grouped them into themes, and we noticed they were really kind of falling into buckets. And the framework you mentioned is really one that's been thought to apply to more cognitive uh, supervision, but we were finding that it really seemed to apply to the supervising behaviors we had seen during the procedures. And so modeling is basically what it sounds like. That would be when the supervising person, so the attending in our case, is doing something themselves or you know, making their thinking explicit, modeling their thinking. Coaching, giving more detailed and close supervision, so asking leading questions, giving direct instructions providing immediate feedback. Scaffolding was more seen by someone, you know, giving anticipatory guidance, right, before the procedure, setting expectations, kind of facilitating the fellow taking autonomy. And fading is when we saw people really sort of stepping back and just letting the fellow kind of run the procedure, run the show. How did faculty determine the fellows' skill level and what style of teaching to use with them? So faculty use different approaches for determining fellow skill level. And among the faculty we observed, there were sort of three or four groups. So some people used a time-based approach based on their general knowledge about what the average fellow would be able to do by a given point in the program. And some faculty individualize their assessment either with a structured discussion. For instance, in the Bronx suite, they would ask a fellow, you know, certain questions every time to gauge their skill. Or by observing them at the beginning of the procedure and having a general gestalt about what that fellow might be able to do based on their experience. Um, And they also mentioned educational handoffs as a way to learn about a fellow skill level. So when they were, you know, coming onto the service, they would ask the outgoing attending, hey, you know, what can this fellow do in the Bronx suite? Is there something they're really good at? Is there something that they need more help with um, to, uh, to gauge the fellow skill level and where they would be able to start? Um, that said, they also sometimes 
adjusted their supervision style kind of independent of what the fellow was able to do um, based on their particular uh, preferences, you know, parts of the procedure that they thought were really, really crucial either to patient comfort or safety or just procedural success. So sometimes it was independent of the fellow's skill level, the approach that they took. Great. Can you please describe, like, the basic themes that you found in your study? Yeah. Um, so some we've already addressed. Um, so the first one that there were there's four different supervisory styles that I mentioned before, the modeling, coaching, scaffolding, and fading. And then there were sort of three themes that really had to do with that central question of how they were balancing the fellow autonomy and patient safety. So first, they made an assessment of the fellow skill level, like I talked about. And then they adjusted their approach throughout the procedure. Um, so they would move between different styles, depending on the part of the procedure, um, how things were going, et cetera. And then based on the interviews, kind of the third theme we really saw was that while we did see a lot of variation in bronchoscopy technique, like, for instance, how people were doing transbronchial lung biopsies, it wasn't just random variation. The attendings were actually very particular about when they allowed variation and when they were sticklers about doing a certain part of the procedure a certain way. So there was a method to when they let the fellow run with things and when they didn't, um, partially based on their own uh, their own styles, not necessarily the fellow skill. Now, Dr. Miles. In your editorial, you describe how there is dynamic variation in procedural technique. Can you please discuss your thoughts on how that was seen in this study and how it relates to procedural safety? Yeah, I certainly can. And Dr. Brady described this uh, very well in that second theme that she discussed where the attending physicians, as they were supervising bronchoscopy, would allow the fellows to practice somewhat differently and, and introduce this variation in how they would perform procedures, specifically transbronchial biopsy. And what I thought was very interesting in this finding is that the faculty member would actively move between different types of supervising behaviors uh, based on uh, the variation in the procedure as well as the fellow's uh, experience with that procedure. Specific to procedural safety, if an attending, for example, saw a situation where the patient was developing a more risky situation, they would move to a more hands-on uh, approach. To take the categories that the authors mentioned, attending might have previously been taking a more fading approach, letting the fellow practice independently, whereas if there were some risks perceived to patient safety, the attending would move towards more of a modeling approach where the attending is actually performing the procedure and uh, the fellow is observing, but the attending is walking them through. There was really a nice quote included in the study that demonstrated a situation where the fellow was um, struggling and the attending came in and said, here, let me take the scope and then watch how I do my hand here. Watch how I turn this. Do you see that? I thought it was a really nice description of that modeling approach. 
Now, Dr. Brady, can you please discuss your study's limitations for our listeners? Absolutely. So this was a small study, and we did it at one center. Um, and we also only watched most, uh, you know, observed most of the attendings once. Uh, we did observe one attending twice, and they were quite consistent, but still it's possible that the behaviors we saw could have been more, you know, idiosyncratic or just related to what was going on that day and not a consistent supervisory approach. Um, and it's possible that because this was just at one institution that what we saw more reflects the culture of that institution and not procedural uh, teaching overall. We also can't explore contradictory findings, so things that were mentioned in the interviews but that we didn't actually see. Um, and we also didn't really explore learner variation and how that might have affected the supervision. So were there behaviors on the part of the learner that really influenced the supervision? So we don't know those things. And what are the next steps for this research? Great question. I think what I was most interested in was whether the approaches that we saw in our study are more universal or whether they really were more specific to our institution. And I'm also interested to see how these supervisory decisions might be affected by the use of more structured tools like the OBAT. So at the time I collected this data, the OBAT had just been published. And I'm curious to know, since it's been several years, are most fellowship programs at this point using the approaches we saw where faculty are kind of doing something different or using a variety of approaches to assess fellow skill level, or has a more structured tool been adopted at a lot of places, and is that sort of driving the assessment and helping faculty make some of these supervisory uh, decisions, or is there a combination? Um, so I'd be curious to study that. Dr. Miles, do you have thoughts on next steps to this research? Yes, I think Dr. Brady is exactly right that we have an opportunity now to combine several different things that have been shown in the literature and really have a more robust look now at the way that we teach and the way that our uh, attending physicians in particular model and describe bronchoscopy. If we take some of the learnings here and the categories that we've been given for the modeling, the scaffolding, and the other approaches – combine that with a standardized skill assessment that we have that are now validated. And if we look at an interesting paper published in 2020 in CHEST that showed the development of learning curves for bronchoscopy, we now have some information about how attendings seem to teach bronchoscopy and how fellows develop over time. We can look at this in a more detailed way to look specifically at the behaviors of different attendings and can they help to bring fellows to a more rapid skill acquisition um, as we look at how the fellow develops their skills over the course of fellowship. So it's really interesting to imagine a study that looked at multiple sites that um, used specific coaching for faculty on some of these teaching skills and then use these validated assessments to check the fellow's progress over time. Uh, so we could learn a lot more um, about the way that we teach bronchoscopy, 
uh, with combining this result from some other recent results. And as we finish up this discussion, can you each please give our listeners a closing thought on what you've learned from your experiences and this research? What do you want them to take away from this discussion? Dr. Brady? I think one of the takeaways for me, uh, now that I'm an attending, I started this project when I was a fellow, is having heard from the fellows we interviewed in the study that the attending flexibility in their supervisory style was really important for their learning. I have taken, tried to take that into my practice and adjust my supervision rather than having kind of a, a blanket approach or deciding I'm going to supervise a certain way and sticking with it through a procedure. Um, but I think a big part of what I learned from this experience was the value of persistence, uh, to be quite honest. I, I started this project when I was a second-year fellow, and it, it took me about six years from the start to uh, to publication. So um, that was a big takeaway for me as well. And Dr. Brady, what is your closing thought? I'm sorry, Dr. Miles. Absolutely. You know, I agree with uh, with Dr. Brady in that some of the great value here is for those attendings that are relatively new to teaching bronchoscopy. Um, in many programs, that's not a position that a senior fellow takes necessarily uh, with a junior fellow. And so your first time, you know, teaching and supervising a junior fellow is, is when you're an attending physician. And so to be able to have this description of what do the behaviors mean? What can I do as I start from a more hands-on approach with modeling to a more hands-off approach with fading? Um, to have that articulated is a really big help. And I think recognizing, just like Dr. Brady said, that like, it's okay to take a different approach for different fellows, and it's okay to take a different approach in different patient situations, um, that there's not a one-size-fits-all method here. Um, other than that, I think that um, as we look at, as educators in our field, Moving forward from here, uh, I would say people should take away the fact that we know a lot more about teaching bronchoscopy thanks to this research, and there's probably even an opportunity here for further research to really better define what are the most effective methods of scaffolding. Is it the pre-procedure in brief? Is there scaffolding? Is there anticipatory guidance that can be given in a specific way during a procedure uh, that could improve the fellow's performance or, you know, increase the speed of their skill acquisition. So I think there's takeaways uh, no matter where you interact with bronchoscopy um, from a clinical practice, teaching method, or from future research directions. Well, a big thank you to the persistent Dr. Brady and Dr. Miles for an interesting discussion, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a Chess Podcast. Until next time.